everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Sheep Stuff. You should know. Uh, this is Season 1, Episode 26. And I am Ryan Mahoney in Rio Vista, California, broadcasting from our, our top-notch studios. And today we got joined with uh, my normal co-host here, Mr. Dan Macon. Good afternoon. You you know what what twenty six episodes means? What we've been doing we've been doing this a half a year. That is true. That is true. Yeah, that a definitely bit more actually. Yeah, a little more because we did the two. We took one week off, and then we had yep. the two that uh, the two interviews. So twenty eight episodes over twenty nine weeks. So we're getting to be regulars. This is exciting. Who thought we could talk about sheep for six months besides us and our wives, probably. <laughs> They're tired of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, how's everything up in Auburn? Oh, and I forgot to mention, this is now our third week with our producer, John, out in the back pushing toggles and flipping switches and making us sound good. So we got to give a big thank you to John for making the listening experience more enjoyable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Doing all the stuff that neither you or I know how to do. So thanks, John. <laughs> but it only good. took what it only took like 35 minutes to set up the equipment and the, the switches <laughs> and make sure everything was good for this one. So yeah. <laughs> but it'll all be worth it. It'll oh heck yes. It. Heck yes. So how's Auburn? Oh, yes. A little change of weather. Yeah, boy, it's probably 15 degrees cooler here today than it was yesterday. A little overcast, so it actually feels like fall here today. How, how are things down there? Yeah, about the same. It was cold this morning. Cold, cold. We had that good west wind blowing the ocean air in off the out of the bay, and and yeah, it was a it had a cold chill in the air. So that little moisture sure helps with the fires and with everything. So even though it's a little windy, it's nice to have that change. It absolutely is. I'm. They backed off the rain for up here now this weekend, but we'll take cooler weather. If it's not going to rain, at least it's going to feel more like fall. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm glad. I I would love to have the rain. It would save me in irrigation, which would be great. But uh, you know, <laughs> what the heck? It's, it's better than nothing. We uh, we don't we our irrigation water shuts off next wednesday whether we get rain or not so yeah well uh we're getting keeping everything soaked as well as we can and over the past like four or five years have you wanted water outside of the standard irrigation season more than normal oh that's a good question um to some extent for stock water, we also rely on our, our irrigation water for stock water. And so having that available later into the fall and maybe a little earlier in the spring um, would have been helpful. It would be helpful right now if we could irrigate till we got our first rain, um, you know, just to kind of keep this pasture going. But have you guys, have you noticed a change in your irrigation season in the last five or six years? Uh, it's really inconsistent. I, I think one of the funniest or interesting things I discovered a few years back, um, I got, they had the rainfall for the city of Vacaville, which is near us over the last hundred years. And it rained 
uh, it rained within like plus or minus one inch of average only three years out of the hundred. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I'd really be curious yeah. to like, though everybody loves talking weather, but I'd love to kind of dive deep down a wormhole and look into the statistics on how, how, um, what the statistical odds of hitting average actually are, because uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that actually getting average is more rare than we think. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And I, you know, I was up actually at the, at the UC beef cattle research station yesterday, monitoring residual dry matter, clipping forage. And um, last year was below average here for rainfall and at or a little above average for forage growth. So I think there's a lot more to it than just the amount of rain. I think it's timing and temperature and soil temperature. And there's so much more to growing grass than just the rainfall. Yeah, I think that's what's really affected our operation over the last few years is it's, is it seems like it's um, the like the totals for the season are above average or below average or kind of falling in that normal ebb and flow. But the the dry spells have been more pronounced and then the wet spells yeah. have been more pronounced. So it seems like we're getting, uh, you know, we'll get all of our rain in March one year and it won't get any fall rains or one year we'll get all fall rains and nothing in the winter. Like this year, our dryland hills dried up in May. Well, typically they're green till June. Um, last year they were green till July. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a weird weather's always an interesting topic and it's always there's a reason everybody talks about it at the coffee shop is because it's always changing and you never got yeah. an answer but um yeah it's it's I, don't know, I always thought that was interesting that you know you only get average three percent of the time in the city of Vacaville so <laughs> you, yep. 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 don't expect it <laughs> expect it yep. boomer bust nothing nothing average or moderate so exactly exactly there's no such thing as normal <laughs> right we're good well how's the sheep doing Sheep are good. Sheep are good. We're breeding. Um, 10 days into breeding season and um, the rams are busy. They're still. Do you ever use those tup markers or anything to see what, what's breeding what? We do on occasion, um, particularly on a young ram, just to make sure he's actually out there doing his work. Um, we've got one small breeding group this year and the, the ram's got a, a marking harness on him. And a week into breeding season, he had marked about 70% of the ewes, mm -hmm. which is, is good news. Good job flushing, Dan. <laughs> that's, that's good herdsmanship. That's right. Yeah. That's right. They were ready to go. Oh, that's so, awesome. Have, you, you, guys, you guys never use it. No. It, it doesn't make sense at your scale. Yeah, not really. Yeah, unless we were trying to do something special. I don't see why we would use it. Yeah. So, yeah. Some kind of research. How's lambing going? Oh, it's good. It, it, um, yeah, we're, we're, uh, yeah, we're good. It, it, uh, it started really strong, stronger than normal. And then we had a little pullback, um, typically around the 11th. I always have the 11th circled on my calendar as the day that it cuts loose last year, it cut loose around like the 14th, 15th. And so I was a little nervous, but, um, we had a little pickup and drop last night and, um, at both ranches. And so that kind of makes me think that we're probably going to just ease our way right into a pretty good rush right on time in three days so it should be should be uh we should be getting one to 200 drop a day here pretty soon that'll keep you busy oh boy that'll keep you yeah busy. i got a, i'm the guy that has to clean all those stalls so <laughs> i saw your video that was great yeah yeah was am great. i doing all right there 
That was good. I know the big criticism, I spend too much money on betting for sure, but. Do you see, not to change the subject, but do you see any relationship with barometric pressure and drop? Do you see more lambs when the barometer's dropping? Uh, um, yeah, yes, yes and no. I think um, I think all those things factor in, like the full moon, you always get mm-hmm. more on mm-hmm. a full moon than a no moon. Uh, you know, those things definitely play into it, but um, I certainly don't swear by them. You know, it just, it happens when it happens. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's nothing we, we always do expect, and maybe this is just kind of the normal gallows humor of all, all ranchers, but I always expect that when we know we've got wet weather coming, we're going to get a big slug of lambs born as that weather system comes in. And it probably, if I went back and really looked at it, it's no different than any other weather condition, but I wonder, maybe we just worry about it. I wonder if that, if that drop in temperature, in the pressure, if it's, if that is somehow related to like, um, a stressor, you know, like, and that's, what's actually causing the, the labor to kick in. Cause like, so we have on the one ranch that I'm at, we got, um, one, one bunch of drop is on a hill and the other bunch is on a flat and the ones on the flat, uh, we put 65 in both bunches and we lambed out like 15 on the hill and five on the flat in the last huh. week. And I mean, it's a lot harder work to be up on that hill right. and we feed right. on the top of the hills. So they have to walk <laughs> up and down to get the water. And then when we finish the three pens, we actually flip bunches. So that way they maintain the exercise. But I wonder if like the, you know, when the pressure changes, your knees hurt, right? <laughs> like things like right. that. I wonder right. if there's a, some, right. I wonder if it's more related to that stress than it is, um, than it is, uh, the pressure specifically. Well, and I wonder if there's some physiological response, if there's a differential in the internal air pressure yeah. in utero versus the external air pressure, yeah. that is all. Sounds like we got to talk to Rosie again. I guess. Yeah, man, that was great. I really enjoyed that mastitis episode. Yeah. I learned a ton. I still, yeah, I still am just, my mind is blown on the analogy between the lungs and the mammary gland and the fact that they're the same and the same viruses affect, like that just thought that was I never put that together. Yeah, I mean, either. yeah, that was really, that was, that was a good takeaway. Um, Absolutely. So speaking of stress, the to- yeah. topic today is uh, animal handling. I thought it was a, you, it's a, it's very important and it's, uh, you know, we all need to be thinking about it to some extent. Yeah. And um there's a lot of information in sheep or in cattle and poultry and all a lot of species, but I kind of have felt that sheep don't have a lot of resources on kind of low stress animal handling, it seems like. So what a what a great topic to bring to the table for episode twenty six. Yeah, absolutely. I this is this is one that I'm, I'm definitely still a student of, still learning, you know, and I think probably as we get into this, it'll be evident that we're all still learning how to do this better, but, but there's, there's always room to improve. Absolutely. But, so, uh, so what effect does the way, like, what are some of the effects of the way you interact with your sheep? What, what does that have on your production? 
you know, I think in observing our sheep, and it'd be I'm really interested to hear your take on this too. I think um, I think livestock in general and sheep in particular really reflect the attitude and approach of their handlers. And so it's easy to be high strung and uptight and have sheep that are high strung and uptight and stressed. Um, I think it's also if, if you're always working quiet and kind of at the pace of the animals, um, that's ultimately reflected back to you and how the animals are behaving too. I do think that there is, um, there are, so I, we try to practice low stress stockmanship in, in our work with the sheep, but that doesn't mean no stress, right? And I think anytime you're trying to move sheep or, or work any kind of livestock, even if you're doing it in a low stress manner, there's the potential to induce stress. And I think physiologically, there's all sorts of ramifications of that from reproductive success to weight gain to a whole variety of factors that we can influence just by the way that we're handling our stock. Um, what, what kinds of things have you noticed in, in the way, because you're working with a lot of different people, what kinds of things do you notice, Ryan, in, in terms of those effects? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's an, you can tell the, the way the animals were handled by, you know, when you load lambs off of, you know, when you handle the lambs afterwards. Um, yeah. There, and there's, there's, you can run the gamut of all different types. I mean, there's um, super gentle sheep and then there's really high strung sheep, but there's also kind of the genetic disposition of different animals and then also the yep. um, environment that they're raised in so like a, a good example of the environmental would be like um, the western range in texas um, those those sheep they're put out on that real sparse country and they don't see a lot of people they you know they're very protective because they, they got a lot of predator pressures and and it's a yeah. very arid climate and so they're, they're, they're scavenging, you know, they're, they're really getting out there to try to get the feed and, and it's good sheep country, but, um, those sheep tend to have a little more, um, natural spookiness to them, or you call it mm -hmm. waspy. I know there's a lot of different terms, mm -hmm. but they're just, they're a little more flighty. Um, and then you, you, you know, the opposite of that is you go up to like Eastern Oregon in certain areas where there's, and you're grazing where there's a lot of camping and people and activities and not a lot of, I mean, there's still predator pressures up there, but, um, you got a herder in them all the time and, and you can have some sheep come off of there and, um, they won't even pack into a truck properly because they're so, um, they're so chill, <laughs> you know? And so, <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's not necessarily all a product of the person's interaction. I think that person's interaction is a part of it. It's a part of a bigger formula. So. I, I think that's very true. I also think that there is, you know, there's, there's been some really interesting research that suggests that sheep recognize people and, and I also wonder um, if they can recognize attitude or approach too. And, and I suspect that they can just in observing our sheep around people who don't know anything about sheep versus, versus people who do. So like, um, like dogs, they, they can, dogs can sense what you're feeling right? and very, very yeah. acutely. 
Yeah. Um, do you think sheep have, uh, you know, probably not as acute as a dog, but do you think sheep have kind of that same in- inclination or at least awareness to an extent? I think they do. I think they do. And I think just as I know when I'm working my, my herding dogs, if I'm patient and calm and, and quiet about it, I see things that I wouldn't see if I were stressed out and in a hurry and, and, you know, already thinking about the next five tasks on my list. And I think sheep can sense that too. I think they respond to that kind of sense of urgency or um, relaxation when we're trying to, they don't respond like a dog would necessarily, but I definitely think they respond to how we approach them. Um, Cause I love going off list and off, off script. Uh, <laughs> Me too. What, Me too. I'm, I'm glad that's probably why we've made it through so many. But, <laughs> Uh, what, what, um, oftentimes low stress or animal, animal handling is directly tied to low stress handling. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, do you, what, do you think there is, a, I mean, how do you, are those two the same or is there, is there, uh, is, is it important to recognize an awareness of, um, stress being a you know proper stress or whatever you call it specific stress in order to accomplish something is an important part of quality handling i that's a that's a god we could spend all episode talking about that i my own perspective on that is that that all handling requires us to induce some stress the good handlers know how to relieve that stress in order to reward a particular decision on the part of the animal. So if I, if I say I need to get a group of sheep headed towards the corrals, I've got to get into their flight zone and and create enough stress that they want to move away from me. Right. But where I really make progress is if I, once I've got that movement in the right direction at the right pace, if I remove that stress and reward them for making that right decision. And I think the same, at least in my experience, the same thing applies to working with the dog. I want a dog that can kind of solve problems. And if the dog is creating more problems, if it's, if it's not doing what I ask it to do, I need to create a little bit of stress for that dog, not as a punishment, but as a correction. And as soon as the dog says that was the bad decision, and you can see that happen. If you remove that stress, that creates space for the dog to start thinking again. And I think the same is true with sheep to, to some extent. Well, how do you how do you view that, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that low stress doesn't mean no stress. And absolutely. And um, I mean, like if you go out and try to bring in a bunch of sheep, completely no stress, and walk out into a field and try to move them without introducing any stress whatsoever, they literally will just look at you and keep eating grass. They won't, <laughs> yeah. they yeah. won't do anything. And even yeah. if you, even if you induce just a little bit of stress, um, oftentimes what'll happen is like, you'll get one bunch to kind of move a little bit away and then they'll go start eating grass. And then they like the bunch starts splitting into multiple bunches and you can't mm-hmm. get them all. You, you need to, you know, there is a level of, there is a level of stress that's important 
And um, I think stress sometimes can be, um, some people can perceive that as synonymous with abuse and they're totally different things. And it, I think it's important to kind of draw those lines to create the definitions of what low stress handling is versus um, no stress versus, you know, a, you know, like an abuse situation, which I don't no, think I, any, I, you know, nobody wants it. I definitely situation. agree. Yeah. And I think, so let, we, let's we, get into that. What are the do nots yeah. when working sheep? Cause that, that gets to that abuse question. Like when does handling become abuse? You know, I, there's, there's kind of the, the 20,000 foot view of that. And then there's the ground level view of that. And I guess kind of philosophically, my approach is there, there's kind of two approaches to it. There's the approach where I'm going to make those sheep do X, Y, or Z. And then there's also the approach of I'm going to make the easy thing, the right thing easy and the hard thing difficult. And I'm going to reward when the right thing is happening. I think trying to force sheep, particularly when I'm in a hurry, is is one of the do nots that that I've had to learn. Um, I think, to me, at least in the way we approach it, we don't use a lot of loud noises or or things like that to try to induce movement or or get sheep going in a certain direction. Um, we're pretty quiet when we work sheep. And I think, I think noise stress has, has some place in some instances, but, but really loud noises and constant hollering, whether I'm working cattle or sheep or, or guinea hens. Um, we don't do a whole lot of guinea hen work here, but a little bit. I, I think that, <laughs> I think, I think that's one of the do nots for me. Um, I do think there are some tools that can help us you know, in certain situations and like every tool they can be used or misused. Um, what, what are some of the do nots in your experience there? And does it change from pasture to feedlot to other situations? Yeah. So in the feedlot, we've been blessed with the opportunity to deal with a lot of different types of sheep. And, and one thing to recognize when you're dealing with sheep from especially other ranches um, is that they all handle slightly different. And so the mm -hmm. biggest, the biggest do not is if you're trying to get them to go somewhere and they're not going, don't work harder, stop and think, what are they seeing? What's wrong? What are they, what's in their behavior that's not working and yeah. why are they not doing it? Yeah. Um, and so that, that's probably the biggest do not is don't, um, don't double down when you're frustrated, stop, take a breath, think about it and more times than not they will go because like um you, you know there's there's such a huge variety in the natural behavior of different sheep based on their breed and their disposition and where they were handled yep so yep. like um you get a bunch of uh of, you know wool blind rambolets off of a banded outfit in the western range and if you make a single noise they all stick their heads up and turn all into a circle. Mm -hmm. They all just turn in. And so if mm -hmm. you make any noise in those kind of situations, it almost never helps. Um, yep. If you go into a bunch of uh, sheep that were bought out of an auction 
that were sourced from a hundred different small farm flocks and you try to push them with no noise, they literally scatter everywhere <laughs> because they don't, they, they just don't work together. They don't really, they're not comfortable working together. So you actually do need to use some noise and or dog in order to get them to look to the right way to see where the gates are to go. And so it's, I think, and then there's all variations in between. And so I think it's really important mm -hmm. to recognize the type of sheep that you're handling. And if they're not doing what you want them to do, it's probably your fault, not theirs. So stop, figure out what that problem is and, and move forward. And that's, that's, you articulated that much better than I did. When we started out, I mentioned that I'm a student of, of stock handling, and I, that's what I'm trying to say there. I think there is always something to learn in every particular situation when you're working livestock, if you're willing to pay attention to what the livestock are telling you. And I think that is the skill that for me has, has taken the longest to develop, is paying attention to what they're telling me. Um, and I think that's a that's a huge point in in becoming a better stock person, stock handler. Yeah, I think it's really hard to um, it's really hard when you want to do something, and you know you know you want them to move them from this corral into this alley, and you've literally moved forty thousand lambs through this over the last year and a half, and this one bunch won't go, and all you want to yeah. do is get it to go, and like the 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 self discipline it takes to stop and think, all right, yep. what am I doing wrong? What, where am I wrong? Where am I putting the wrong pressure? Is there a string hanging off a gate that's spooking them? Is there yep. a dog sitting somewhere that I can't see? You know, what's, what's causing yeah, this? Yeah. You know, that, that ability to stop yep. when all you want to do is finish like that, that's really hard to do. And, um, but it's critical for, to be good herdsmen. And it's even harder to do when you're working with other people, in particular, other people that yeah. are not studying how to be so better stock. When people. you do that, what what do you do? What's your reaction? Do you yell at the other people or do you, or should I tell you what I, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what I do. Tell me what you do and then I'll, yeah. I get, yeah. I get pissed and I leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it depends on the situation. Yeah, a lot me, of times right? I just stop and I walk away. <laughs> <laughs> so I, for many years, was asked to come help load fair lambs out the day after the fair. And I'm probably not, not to, not to be egotistical. I'm probably the only person in that group that has worked with more than 10 sheep at a time. And I finally quit going because the way that everybody else figured you needed to load these lambs was get, get them running as fast as you can on concrete until they're bunched up against the trailer and then push them in. And guess what? They kept breaking back and wanting to go back where they'd been and not loading. And in that case, I just decided it was probably better for me not to be there. Yeah. And it gets back to that, like what's going on that's wrong. And usually when I'm frustrated because there's too many people, yep. Well, what needs to happen? People need to leave. <laughs> there needs to be one or two people working. Yeah, it needs it. to yep. be less than less than them plus me. So I. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of that that goes on, and and you know when you 
when you get frustrated and walk away and leave, people stop and think and want to know what's going on. True. And they, they start to reflect. And a lot of times it changes. True. Um, so, True. so what, what, a, what, a, I mean, working dogs is a, is a critical part of, um, of, uh, raising sheep and handling yep. sheep and, um, dogs are, or canines are a natural predator to sheep. So when you inter- yep. introduce a dog, there's stress and I'm curious, or I, my question is, is what, what effect does a dog have on the sheep and how do you use that properly? And why are those dogs so important? How, do, how does using that dog lower stress overall? So I, I think, first of all, I think not all dogs are created equal in that regard. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of, of kind of reading your dog and or dogs and reading your sheep. Um, I think the, the people that I've observed who are the best dog people and not necessarily sheepdog trial people, but the best people working dogs in a production setting have dogs that are problem solvers rather than problem creators. And I think that's part of a communication system that you build up with the dog, that that the dog kind of trusts you to have his or her back and vice versa. That said, as you, as you say, the, you know, a dog in, in induces stress into that system. But I think done properly, it's the kind of stress that um, can also be removed when the response is what you're looking for from the sheep. So to me, the, the best dogs that I've ever worked have a sense of how much stress is needed for a particular situation and will back off once they've had the response that, that we're both looking for. I've also had dogs that had no off button at all and the stress never was relieved. And, and I don't think that's productive. It wasn't productive for my mental well-being, and certainly wasn't productive for the sheep either. But how, how will you take a new dog to sheep or a, a, a current dog to sheep that have never been worked with dogs? Are there some things you'll do differently? Yeah, it better be on a leash. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, where I, Definitely one of my weakest parts is training dogs. I don't have a working dog on my side. Uh, guys in the crews do. Um, but I think if you went out and critiqued our dogs, our dogs are on the lower end of great. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a, I don't think that's a, that's a knock on the guys at all. It's just the way they, they use them in the different situations. Um, it's yeah. Anyway, it's, yeah, I, but I think dogs are important. I think the biggest thing that a dog will do that actually helps the sheep is when, especially if you're in that big field, if you put a dog down on the ground, that takes the sheep and their natural inclination when they have a predator come in, they get together. And yep. They protect themselves. And if you're going to try to move a bunch of sheep, um, it's a lot more stress to try to move them one by one by one than by getting yep. them all together and then moving them. So like yep. we'll go and you'll go to gather sheep. You'll be on a m- motorbike or something. You drop the dog off the motorbike, introduce them. The sheep come together. The dog goes back on the bike and you just slowly walk them to where they need to go. So you're introducing mm-hmm. a little bit of stress, but you're preventing a heck of a lot more stress if you try to do it one by one by one or little bunch by little bunch by little bunch. 
Well, and I think that I think dogs can read stock better than we can oh, yeah. if they're if they're halfway decent dogs. And you know that's been um, one of the more rewarding things to me about using dogs is is watching that ability to communicate. That's of the three species, we're probably the least able to communicate with the other two. Um, and that I think is just an interesting dynamic to watch. Uh, what, uh, go, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to ask you to define what a flight zone is. You mentioned that earlier, but what's a, what's a flight zone? Yeah. My understanding of a flight zone is I, I kind of think of it as this bubble, um, around an animal, um, if, if the stressor, the person or the dog or whoever remains outside of that bubble, um, the sheep is comfortable. If the stressor moves within the bubble, the animal's instinct is to move away, is to move off. And I, I think in my experience, the size of that bubble changes um, for a whole variety of reasons, um, environmental, um, I, you know, different breeds tend to have different size flight zones, um, times of year or, or that, you know, kind of production cycle will have a difference in their flight zones too. A ewe that, that's going to move off when I'm within 20 feet of her, um, at least in our sheep, when she's just dropped her lamb, her flight zone becomes really, really small. Um, and in fact, if I introduce a dog at that point, um, what used to be her flight zone becomes her fight zone. She'll try to chase the, chase a dog off at that at that point. Typically, I see the the fight zone where they're gonna gonna respond aggressively rather than moving away as as kind of an inner circle to that bubble. Um, that you got to be a lot closer to them to make them feel they're threatened enough to fight you off. But that that changes from from day to day and and month to month really in our system. That, you know, I, I think we can use that knowledge too. If we're going in and out of that flight zone, once we go out of it, we've just rewarded them for doing something because we've removed that stress. And so being able to read where that flight zone is in a group of sheep. And I, that's the, I guess that's the other point too, isn't it? That, that an individual animal has that flight zone, but sheep, because they are more naturally gregarious, typically, at least the white-faced sheep, a group of sheep has a flight zone too. Um, and reading that is, is interesting. Yeah. I think it, we, with the, with the drone we just bought and then some of the videos that you can see on the internet from different working, working sheep and looking at that when you're moving through them and you see them going different ways, it's really neat to see that flight zone as a herd. And how yeah. well they communicate amongst each other, you know, where there'll be, you know, there'll be a guy or person walking through over here, but then these sheep way on the other side of the corrals are reacting to it, even though they can't see it. It's just, that's the herd is reacting. It's yeah. Pretty, pretty brilliant. So. Yeah. And I, there's some, there's some really interesting research kind of on animal behavior that, that is interesting to apply to some of those graphic demonstrations too, you know, sheep are going to want to move past you. If you're walking the opposite direction, they'll actually speed up. Um, if you walk in the same direction as a group of sheep, typically they'll want to slow down a little bit. Um, sheep 
all livestock really want to go back the way they came and, and you know that we can use that to our advantage or we can allow that to frustrate us when they're trying to break back on us. So in, in your experience, how, how have you seen uh, um, a lot of, like, I guess to preface the, the question, a lot of my experience in, in sheep handling or my information on sheep handling has come from the, the stuff done in cattle mm-hmm. and the similarities mm-hmm. between those species. But I'm curious from your experience, are that, what are some of the main differences between sheep and cattle? have to think about this a little bit because I think a lot of my kind of technical understanding comes from the work in this country that's been done in cattle too. I think there's there's a number of similarities um, in, in terms of behavior. So flight zone, the fact that they're a prey animal, the fact that they'll want to go back the way they came, those types of things are pretty similar. I think one of the differences that I've noticed is that cattle can be easier to get lined out from moving in a particular direction, whereas it takes a little more finesse to get sheep out of that ball where they're just kind of circling and lined out and moving in a particular direction. And I, I don't know if that's because of their more gregarious nature, their, their flocking instinct. Um, that, that we can create those little whirlwinds of sheep that, that just go in a circle and never go anywhere much easier than we can with cattle. I think part of it, um, at least in my observation also, is that we are not as easily intimidated by sheep because they don't outweigh us. And so some of my, per- some of my use will outweigh you. <laughs> no, I, I've been on the COVID yeah. diet. I don't think they will now. <laughs> Uh, but I, but I do think there's an element of that, that, that maybe we're not intimidated, but a little more respectful of the flight versus fight zone in a, in a 1200 pound mama cow with a calf than we would be with, with 180 pound you. Um, and so we read that a little differently. What, what are some of the differences that you notice or, or similarities? Right? Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to narrow it down. I mean, it, whenever I've had kind of these discussions, even like you'll, you'll hear stuff from like Temple Grandin or some of those kind of experts and mm-hmm. they'll say, well, sheep, sheep basically are the same. They just hurt a little more or they're more, you know, they follow better. But I, I think there's, there's, there's some pretty major differences in their aptitudes and I can't necessarily pinpoint exactly what it is. I, it gets, I think it's somewhere circular around the, I mean, it, you can simplify it and say, yeah, they heard more. But it's it's more than that. They they circle more. They protect themselves more. They give themselves up more, and like they 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 move much more in in a bunch rather than moving as like cattle. I feel like you can move as individuals. You can take this cow right. and this cow and this cow, and sheep. You can't take this sheep and this sheep and this sheep. You have to take right. the sheep. And when right. you're trying to split it, rams, you can sort independently but outside of rams it's almost impossible to just sit there and sort one by one by one unless you have sheep in the two locations and you know some real and i yeah i i've seen that done by somebody who had great dogs and was a great handler 
And I don't think there's very many people like that. And I think that's a good, that's a good analogy to kind of, and I can't put my finger on exactly what it is, but like we, we can use herding dogs and sheep, but you can't, you can use dogs and cattle, but you can't use herding dogs like you do in sheep in cattle because the way the behavior is so different. You know, what's interesting though. And I, I, I need to think some more about this. I had a, a dog that was really tough to work on sheep um, took a long time to get going and was just, he and I butted heads for probably the first three years. And I took him to work um, at the Sierra field station on cows. And about a month in, he learned that he had to be a little more thoughtful around the cows because they could actually hurt him. Um, not that a sheep couldn't hurt a dog, but, but a 1200 pound cow, ticked because you're you're separating her from her calf can kill a dog in a heartbeat and he started being a lot more first and foremost a lot more thoughtful but he also started listening to me and I took him back to sheep and it was like he was a different dog and from that point forward he was a dog I could trust to to work on sheep but it was it was an interesting dynamic partly I think because the cows were a little more aggressive and he had to be a little further out to get the kind of, of movement that I had, had wanted him to do with sheep. Hmm. He said something else there about, about cows versus sheep, um, about, about kind of lining them out and working individually. And I think that is one of the differences. Um, goats are more, a little more like cows in my experience in that regard. And I think sheep have this different social structure and relationship with other sheep. It's different than cows or goats. Yeah, there's a lot of unspoken communication through a herd of sheep, and it, it's yeah. yeah, it's hard to yeah, much more so than cattle or goats or some of these other yeah. ruminant types animals. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, do you know? Uh, I mean, I know. I think you're involved in one study looking at like stress levels in sheep, but you know, are the, you want to you want to talk about that, and then maybe if you know of any other kind of research that's being done kind of on handling of sheep specifically? Um, my understanding is there's quite a bit of research that has been done in Australia and New Zealand, as you might imagine, um, both on kind of facility design and, and then more on, on behavior and, and handling um, approaches. We're working a little bit on this project with um, specifically focused on maternal behavior, but also looking at, at kind of behavioral cues that can maybe tell us um, which replacement you is going to be a good mother and, and which might not be, kind of in terms of her response to people, um, people that she knows and people that she doesn't know. There are some physiological ways that we can measure stress in animals, um, cortisone levels or cortisol levels um, can be indicative of, of stress and we can find that in fiber so hair or, or wool both i think you know i think one of the interesting questions that i would have um we see stress induced wool break occasionally in our sheep where we'll have weak fiber and typically that's a nutritional stress but i wonder if chronic stress from from poor handling could cause some issues like that too and and whether that's something that 
that other people have observed. What what kinds of things do you look for in terms of stress-induced problems that, that might relate to handling? Oh, stress-induced problems would be, I mean, you have the wool brick, the fiber tells the story of what happened to that sheep during the year. And, and you know, we'll have a pretty, pretty big spectrum uh, or we've seen pretty big spectrums of different breaks and strengths in the wool, depending on um, how they were handled and where they were at and where they're from, those kind of things. Um, so the wool's definitely a factor. Um, with the low price of wool, it's not an incentive, but, right. <laughs> but it's a factor. Right. Um, right. But I, I think that your biggest ones are going to be gain, like, you know, your gain in overall herd health. Like when you introduce stress, um, it makes them more susceptible to all sorts of different things. And so the more stressed yeah. they are, the more, you know, the more they are susceptible to, to just everything, all sorts of herd health issues. And so, I mean, if you're not, if you're not working on maintaining the low stress levels in your sheep, they will reward you with um, a lot of problems and poor gains. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And like another, well, another big one actually is, um, is, uh, scanned in twins, preg scan, mm. like ultrasounded in twins and then live birth twins and the number or percentage of, um, pregnancies that have been reabsorbed. Stress can cause, the uh, one of those pregnancies to be reabsorbed up to a ter- certain amount of time in gestation and. And I think if you have the wrong kind of stress during that gestation period that you can lose a lot of twins or, you know, and you'll get mad at your yeah. preg scanner. You say, well, how did they get that wrong? But I mean, I've sat there and watched and seen the scans and seen the multiple animals within the picture and then, you know, have stuff pop up with only one lamb. Yeah. And I think there's, that's a, that's a major factor that I don't, I don't know many people that have a good, good uh, understanding of that. You know, I was talking with another producer, um, reminds me of this, of this story, with another producer who will put drop bands with a single herder all during lambing. So there's one person kind of taking care of that group of ewes throughout the last part of their gestation and, and into lambing. And he's told me that there's typically one or two guys that consistently outperform everybody else in terms of the pounds of lamb weaned from their bands. And I think stockmanship has something to do with that. I think, I think there's an element of how those guys work with their sheep that may be different in terms of the stress levels for those ewes and for the lambs. It'd be interesting to look at that a little more carefully. Yeah. Well, we're going to run out of time soon, so I'll just I'll ask. I know. We better get rolling. I know. I'll have to ask maybe one one more and save the rest of these for later. But um, what? Uh, who who are some of the handlers that you look up to? Or how, how, how have you gotten informed on how to handle livestock? Good question. I And I'll, I'll try to be concise with this, um, but this could be a whole episode. You know, I, I've had the chance to work livestock with some people who learned from Bud Williams. Um, and Bud Williams was a, a rancher from here in California originally that, that really was a student of stockmanship. And um, working with people that had worked with him has given me a whole new appreciation for 
being the best stock handler you can be, regardless of the facilities or the, the situation, but, but always paying attention to what the stock are telling you. Um, I've been to several Temple Grandin talks and seen things that she's designed. And, and I think the way I would contrast um, Temple and, and Bud is that Temple Grandin assumes that people aren't going to take the time to learn to be good stockmen. So she sets up facilities to make sure the animals are, are handled correctly. And I think there's a place for that, absolutely. I think Bud Williams, if I could do the cliff notes, is pay attention to your stockmanship and to the behavior of the animals and, and design your systems accordingly. Um, the other guy that I've worked with a little bit, and, and I guess the one takeaway that I really valued from him is a guy named Steve Cody who um, mostly works with cattle, but had learned from Bud Williams quite a bit. And one of the things that he taught me was the importance of how you start out in working a group of animals. Um, that just, you know, if you jump into a bunch of sheep that are bedded down and sleeping, if you just get them all up and start them moving right away, at least in our sheep, that's kind of a, a train wreck waiting to happen. But if you get up and, and let them stretch and kind of figure out where other pieces of the flock are and then start asking them to do something that it, the, whole, the whole move goes much more smoothly. And that, that was really, particularly moving ewes with lambs, that was a real eye-opener for me um, that I, I learned a lot from and, and still try to, to use. How about you? Who are some of the, the people you look up to and why? Oh, I think... You know, Tem Temple Grandin's way up there. Um, I really like mm -hmm. the way you broke down the difference between her and Bud Williams. I think it's pretty, pretty accurate. And I think they both have um, some really good things to add. And um, yeah, me too. Just, you know, yeah, I, I think other people that I kind of look up to and learn from um, is uh, there's been a couple of guys on the ranch that I got the opportunity to work with. And, um, they, they've taught me a lot. They taught me how to kind of recognize the livestock and, and really kind of look at them and not, not look at what people are telling you to do, but look at the livestock and make your decisions based on that. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing for me is just being blessed with the opportunity to travel all over the Western United States and work sheep and see sheep in uh, just so many different setups and, and facilities and, and um, different types of styles of herding and, and working. And you can kind of glean good things off of every one because, you know, there's most, most people aren't doing everything all bad. Most people have got a lot of what they're doing right. is good. And that's right. um, you just need to make sure you, you really pay attention to the, pay attention to the details, pay attention to the livestock and then, you know, make your, make your, uh, yeah, make sure you're working within the systems that you have the best you can rather than you know, changing everything up. Well, and I, the other person I would, I would, um, that I look up to in that regard is, is Roger Ingram, my partner in the sheep business here. You know, Roger got to work some with Bud. And, and I think one of the things I've really learned from Roger is that this, the, the idea that, let, well, let's try it and see what happens. Um, and I think all of the good stock people I've worked around are willing to try something and learn from it 
recognizing that parts of it are going to be wrong, but every time we try something new, we're going to learn. Um, and I think that kind of open-mindedness is, is something I've really learned from Roger. Yeah, I think it's really important. And then when something doesn't go right, it's really important to kind of reflect and figure out why, like, yeah. was it, was it me? Was it the corrals? Was it the, was it the sheep? Was it the type of sheep? Was it the conditions the sheep came into the facility? Like there's so many things that can make an animal react, yep. you know, bizarrely or oddly. And so, you know, to, to be very open to the cause um, and not just look at the effect, I think is really important. Like, you know. I, I couldn't agree more. We've started, even if it's something we've done a hundred times before we've started taking two minutes before we start something and say, this is how we expect it to go. This is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. And then when we're done with that, if it went great, we say that went great. But if something happened that we didn't expect, we've started making ourselves take time to reflect and discuss it and, and think about what we could have done differently. Mm -hmm. and that's helped me a lot. Helped me a lot. Yeah. Well, good. Well, thank you. We covered lots of ground. This was a good yeah, one. Yeah, it was a fun, fun episode. Appreciate it. I got to get back out to the Lamin Barn. But well, have fun with Lamin. I've got a, a webinar tonight. So oh, lucky you. More Zoom in my future. Very, more Zoom in my future. Very cool. And a shout out to John for keeping us on track and improving our sound quality immensely. Absolutely. Almost, right. almost radio quality. <laughs> that's good because we got a face made for radio. right <laughs> all right dan you take her easy until next time thanks guys this is sheep stuff you should know i'm dan macon i'm ryan mahoney take care